all of us at some point have used practice as yet another buffer from life, from ourselves. And I most certainly have done that. And is part of what I am very much interested in shifting to enter into each moment, you know, of, of my life. As my first teacher, Daito Roshi, used to say, as if it's the first moment and the last moment of my life. And it sounds very dramatic when you say that. And it's not like you're really thinking about it and then doing it that way. Not really. It's a shift, I think, and it really means a willingness to be there for all of your life. Vanessa Suisse Goddard is a writer and Zen teacher based in New York City. She trained full-time at Zen Mountain Monastery from 1995 to 2014, 14 of those years as a monastic. In 2018, she received Dharma transmission from Jeffrey Shogun Arnold Roshi, abbot of Zen Mountain Monastery and head of the Mountains and Rivers Order. For the last 10 years, Suisse has been leading retreats and workshops on a wide range of teachings in Buddhism and meditation, with a special emphasis on the power of stillness and silence to transform our lives. Suisse's articles have appeared in Tricycle, Lion's Roar, Buddha Dharma, and Parabola. Currently, she's working on a book about faith, belief, and contemplation. Her first book, Still Running, The Art of Meditation in Motion was released by Shambhala in August of 2020. You are listening to Sit, Breathe, Bow, a podcast for practitioners. Each week, leading Buddhist teachers share life experiences and insights to help guide your meditation practice as well as your life off of the cushion. I am your host, Ian Whitemar. This podcast is sponsored by the Quantum Online Sangha, a virtual Zen practice community of the International Quantum School of Zen. Members of the Online Sangha meditate together, study with teachers, and participate in workshops and courses to develop their practice. Listeners of this podcast are invited to try a free month of training, which includes live Q&A interviews with Zen teachers, discounts on webinars and online classes, and access to a private community where students can discuss their practice and receive guidance. To access your free month of training, simply visit quantumzenonline.org and click on the free trial membership button on the homepage. So, we say you lived at a monastery for 25 years. Two years ago, you left upstate New York or something like that and moved into New York City. Very different location. Very different sort of sangha, I imagine. What brought that about? How are you experiencing uh, the difference as a teacher? Well, the reasons for my leaving were, were varied, but... Um, let me just say that I said to a friend as I was coming specifically to New York City, which is where I wanted to to come, that I was looking for silence. <laughs> and she laughed, just like you did. I did live in upstate New York, so the monastery is near Woodstock, in the edge at the edge of the Catskill Park. So it's this really idyllic 
place uh, where you know the loudest sound was us mowing the lawn and uh, using other power tools. Um, but uh, my my life and my responsibilities had increased um, over time, and so my life had gotten increasingly full in a in a good way for sure. But I I when I left I very much wanted to return to my love, really, which is uh, the practice of zazen, but specifically um, stillness and silence. And I wanted to see if I could find that in the city. I wanted to see if I could um, bring the monastery into the world, in a sense. Because I thought, if I can do it here then I'll be okay <laughs> anywhere. And uh, I'd be lying if I said that it was easy in the beginning, that it was a smooth transition. I mean, it, actually, in some ways, it was quite smooth. I was very fortunate in finding an apartment and, and you know, the, the practical aspects of a move, if you will, and especially a, a, a big move like that, uh, in some ways was surprisingly easy. It was, it was the adjustment for me, of course, from, from living in community almost 24 seven to really being on my own and from being part of, of a Sangha and being known in the Sangha and to coming to New York city where I was essentially, you know, anonymous. And I realized that I, I, wanted some of that, even though it was difficult for sure in the beginning. I wanted some of that. I wanted the opportunity to be a regular person, which was very much the case, <laughs> <laughs> very much the case um, for quite a while. And and I wasn't teaching also for about a year. And I was focusing on writing and I was looking for work, you know, really for the first time in my life, I had to support myself I mean, I had had jobs in the past during college and before going to the monastery in a couple of periods when I was not living at the monastery. But really, um, I became an adult in Zen Mountain Monastery. And so for the first time, I really was out in the world uh, needing to, to find, you know, livelihood. And, um, you know, I, I said to a friend, you know, I would read some of these job descriptions online and I would think to myself, I think I'm qualified for this job, but I wasn't sure because I didn't even understand the language, especially corporate, you know, America. And then every single job that I that I um, looked at said, must have abil ability to multitask. And I kept thinking, but I've spent 25 years trying to not do that. <laughs> I don't want to multitask. Um Eventually, I, I did find work, and, and a lot of it was actually through people that I knew, through through the larger Buddhist sangha, uh, found some editing work with some of the Buddhist um, publishers and magazines, and then you know slowly things uh, built up, and I was and I was fine. But but in the beginning, everything everything was a shift. And to be very honest with you, I don't know how people do it without meditation. I said mm. that to a friend and she said, medication, <laughs> which I guess, <laughs> oh my gosh, yeah. <laughs> I guess is one way to do it. But um, I have been, I have always, I've been fortunate enough to have always 
experienced Zazen as a refuge. Mm-hmm. And that was even more so during this time of transition. I, I uh, knew I could rely on myself, right? Because it's what I had done. It's what I had trained for, you know, even in the midst of, of community. So I really, in, in, in some very difficult moments, some very difficult days, Zazen was always um, the support that I've experienced it to be. Zazen and running. And it was one of the reasons that I that I run because I don't really compete or do anything like that. It's really just another. It's a moving form of meditation for me. So I really had the seated form and I had the moving form. So I really felt, in, in one in a, in a strange way, very held and protected. You know, you mentioned the running, and I, yeah, I was reading a review of your book online, and <clears throat> they had a passage out of. Out of your book, where they talk about, where you t- talk about, um, st- actually stopping as soon as the the thought appears, and not like slowing down, but stopping and recentering before you start running again. And I was just like, oh my god, I I wouldn't make it very far at all. Most of us wouldn't. Yes, that is one of my practices in the book. It's um, stop, start, running, where you know, you're really both seeing how distracted, you know, most of us are most of the time and also building concentration. So it's a very annoying practice (laughs) in Mm -hmm. one sense. And I always do it for a very short period of time. You know, I say to people, you know, you go out for maybe 10 minutes and every time you notice a thought, you stop completely. And what you do see, if you're really being honest, what you see is that you're going to have to stop every few seconds. And then slowly with time, you know, as you work on it, just as you do in seated zazen, the, the, the thoughts begin to slow down. You know, you begin to be quieter and you begin to be able to be in your body in this case. Because, you know, one of my, my arguments is that even some of us who love to run are not necessarily in our bodies. You know, many people want to have run. Many people want to be done with it. They don't necessarily want to be there as it's happening. And therefore, watching television and, you know, listening to a podcast or, you know, even listening to to music, which, you know, I don't, I'm not against it at all. But I, I really mm, see running as another opportunity to be embodied you know, to be with my body and my mind. And so that's what that practice does. It it's really begins to show you when that is not happening. You know, I had a funny experience this morning. I was going to go out for my run. And uh, my phone was on like 5 or 8%. And so I realized it was, I was not going to be able to map my run or you know like it would just take up too much juice and i had this moment where i was like oh my god am i i can't go out running without my phone and what really struck me was how much that phone actually keeps and again like you said like i don't actually have a problem with it but like there i was not really looking to be out away from my body because i was going to listen to music or that's where the hang-up was Mm -hmm. 
And, you know, here I am, this like Zen student sits all the time, blah, 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 all this stuff. And I, I remember looking at the phone and being like, oh, I don't want to go on the run without my phone. <laughs> <laughs> this is funny to talk to you now, like the day that this happened. <laughs> I think I'm that sort of disembodied runner. And I think, you know, and it, again, it's not that there's anything wrong with going out for a run with music or anything, because it can really, you know, inspire you and, and give you energy, energize you when you're feeling tired and stuff. I think it's, it's really more that, you know, what you're saying, you know, it's, it's noticing when we've um, separated ourselves in any way from what we're doing, which of course is so much at the heart of Zen, you know, that closeness that that intimacy that immediacy of experience so that's really what i'm always looking for regardless of what i'm doing i also walk but you know i was saying you know i also i i love to walk and i love to walk in the city i love to walk through all these various neighborhoods and um and i really those morning walks especially because i tend to go early in the morning on the weekends where i feel like i have the city to myself um are, are my time to just be and observe, you know, just, mm -hmm. just really be with myself and be with my environment even more than, than when I'm running because I'm usually, you know, have a little bit of a time constraint, et cetera. You know, with my walks, it's, it's really just being. How is it different for you in the city, both maybe as a teacher and with the people that you work with? compared to the people who are up in in the Catskills like are you do you notice that you're having to teach in a, a slightly different way or I'm having to teach in a completely different way because I started <laughs> teaching again uh, during the pandemic you know the pandemic oh, started sure. last year yeah. and so all of my teaching all of my teaching has happened online Mm -hmm. And, you know, at first I wasn't sure how that was going to, to work. And I have been surprisingly uh, pleased and delighted. Um, I think it has helped that, that a number of the people that I've been working with, I knew before. So we already had some sort of relationship. It's been a little harder, not impossible, but it's been a little harder when I had to, to start that relationship from scratch and you're doing that via Zoom. Um, and yet it's been, you know, and I was very hesitant to actually do any sitting. The last thing I, I work from home, obviously, and I, all my work is on the computer. So I was very, very reluctant to sit oh, right. in front of my computer mm -hmm. until at one point last summer, I decided I really wanted and needed community. And so I started doing these weekly sits and I have been actually, like I said, very, very um, um, surprised and, and um, how much I've actually enjoyed it and how much it's actually given me. I think because also, of course, we're all on the same boat. You know, we're all having to find new ways to connect. And of course, what it does give me is the opportunity to work with people who live farther away and whom I wouldn't be able to see regularly anyway. So, so from, from that perspective, it's, it's been completely different from what I used to do before. Um, and now I also, I think the shift for me, the main shift for me is now that I'm, I'm 
truly a lay practitioner now. You know, so at the monastery, even though I took off my robes in 2014, and so those last four years that I was there, I was uh, almost on a full-time schedule, but I was no longer um, ordained. And I had a little bit, and so I wasn't living at the monastery, was living very close. And so I had a bit more more leeway. And so in that sense, the transition was um, somewhat gradual. You know, when I was I was now coming back and forth between the monastery and a home, etc. But I still wasn't supporting myself. And so now I really am living the, the, the life of a, of a lay practitioner in a way that I never actually did, because I, I began practicing while in college and then went to the monastery soon after. So I never really had to deal with the things that most practitioners deal with, you know, dealing with a family or job responsibilities or, you know, do you take vacation or do you go to Sashin, you know, things like that. And so now that's my life, you know, and, and um, it's been wonderful, again, for me to have that freedom and also to understand firsthand um, the lives of the, the people that I had been working with and practicing alongside for so long. So that's been really, um, I've really uh, appreciated it. And, um, and I wonder how it would be different or if it would be more difficult if I hadn't had those years of intensive monastic training, which I will never be able to repay. In a sense, what I received from that training, I'll never be able to repay. You know, to have the opportunity to immerse yourself in practice like that, you know, as as you know, you know, living in a in a center. I mean, it's just there's there's nothing quite like it if you want to dedicate your life to to the Dharma. And so I feel like I'm, you know, I'm I'm I've had the best of both worlds, really. That I was able to do that for for a period, and now I'm able to experience this and see where practice lives, you know, in those two two worlds and the the meeting between those two worlds. And so, where does practice? Where's practice living for you? Well, I guess a lot of it's Zoom, right? I guess yes. that's the, that's it's where I was. I realized how stupid that question was as it was coming out of my mouth. I was like, "Where's practice living for all of us?" It's all on Zoom. I thought you meant that more metaphysically. No, I was really thinking, you know, just not thinking the question through. Well, can I answer it? Yeah, sure, you absolutely can. <laughs> Since you gave me that opening, yeah. You know, one of the things that's been um, very poignant for me because I'm in the city. And because you see so much life and so much humanity in the city, um, one of the things that has been very alive for me is really <laughs> going back to the to the fundamentals of Buddhism. You know, really understanding suffering and understanding you know the gap between my desire and reality, or my expectation and reality. And to me, that's really both where suffering blooms, right, if I don't like that gap, but it's also the opportunity for practice. And because now I'm really making my own choices, so I wake up in the morning and I decide how I'm going to 
fill my day, you know, how many hours I'm going to work and what order, you know, what I'm going to do when, etc. I'm constantly having to make decisions that was, you know, it was just different in a, in a monastic, monastic setting. And, and because now, uh, uh, you know, a good portion of that time I'm spending alone, it's been very interesting to see just how I'm reflected back to myself when I'm paying attention through doing work, through relating, you know, to friends, relating to Sangha, relating, you know, um, that doesn't change. If you're paying attention, life shows you exactly where you are. And so, you know, it, it's just been, you know, now that I'm in a different setting, I think it's just become, like I said, more poignant to really see where I'm creating suffering or where someone else is creating suffering and and how to tr- truly get in there <laughs> and and address it and try to alleviate it. You know, like you, you know, I've been leading a lot of these sits for the last 11 months. I've been leading one that was uh, twice a day for Monday to Friday. And this, really, this sangha sort of developed. And people on this podcast are probably tired of hearing this because I keep talking about these people. Because <laughs> it's like the, the biggest thing in my life. <laughs> but like you said, the the quality, I really noticed this at one point, the quality of that those Zoom calls was very different from the other two or three Zoom calls calls I do every day. And I think sort of going back, you have this article about sacred space. And I I had not put Zoom into that sacred space until just this moment. But I think why that Zoom call is actually life-giving rather than sort of soul sucking which so you know we can just get so worn out by the mm-hmm. by the screen but i never feel that way about this practice zoom call because we have this little discussion at the end and something actually happened it's sacred space actually i hadn't really thought of it until sort of reading your article preparing for this interview and then sort of this conversation um so I guess my question for you would be, what can you do to extend that sacred space to the other calls, right? I mean, mm-hmm. uh, there is something that happens in community, a space, we co-create a sacred space, which is part of what I say in my, in my article. So there is something that is happening in those Zoom calls that is happening within community that you can't force if you're, you know, if you're one party of a, of a Zoom call, but I think there's still, um, there's still things that you can do to uh, encourage that, if you will, for, for yourself. You know what I mean? I do. I mean, I, like many things in Zen, there's an intellectual grasping. <laughs> I, you know, I hear the words that you're saying, and I don't uh, disagree that it's possible um and yet somehow it feels almost like the there's a mutuality that's happening on the the sangha calls whereas the other ones there isn't that mutuality it's really about work like we Mm got to get some work done and um 
and for me to sort of manufacture a sacred space just solely unto myself seems well see i don't know i i have to think about it honestly because i feel like in the other calls like i'm as much as i'm leading it i'm being held by it as well yes and i think i would agree with you that that is not something that you can manufacture because again it is something that we co-create but i think i i like the distinction that you made of you know something that is how how we use this technology in a way that can be either life-giving or soul-sucking <laughs> mm. um and i think to me that's the key you know uh, most of my life most of my work has been i've had to rely on the computer and i've struggled with it at times mightily you know and the 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 soul sucking aspect of being on a, in front of a screen you know hour after hour uh email you know let alone social media which i'm uh, rather new to and yet i started i started doing and that's always been the the question driving you know some of the work that i'm doing is how do i do this in a way that has integrity and how do i do this in a way that does not suck away my my soul because i feel i find i see the necessity of it to some extent and so how do i use something skillfully and not be used by it um to me that's that that would be the pivot you know, and I don't, I mean, I, I certainly don't have a, an answer for you. I know the things that I've, that I've done, you know, to, to help myself um, not feel drained at the end of a work day. Uh, and, you know, sometimes you just, you do because you just do, but it's really shifted, you know, over time uh, in, in, in my desire to really practice, you know, the time that I am in front of this this screen and and sometimes interacting with others so so i think that's what i was thinking of when i when i asked that question well i i sort of see this theme also in you know the way that you've talked about your book and some of what i've read about it in terms of there's this practice life which we have on the cushion whether it's in a monastery or you know a sort of more urban temple like the one i'm in um and then there's this, how do you move that Zen, oh, everything that we've been practicing into the rest of the, the rest of our lives. And how, when people, when students are coming to you and, and just talking about their practice life or their lived life, which most of us talk about it in a very bifurcated way, like this is when I practice, this is when I, you know, don't do practice, but I do my living. What kind of guidance are you offering them in in how to really bring the practice right into that, you know, into the computer work, into the whatever work? I mean, I think the same the same guidance that I give myself, which is that encouragement to see every moment of my life as sacred because I'm living it because it's my life, because I don't get it back. 
you know, I don't know how long I'm going to do <laughs> You're going to end up with a bunch of people quitting their Zoom calls because they're like, this is a sacred moment and you're not part of it. And they're just going to get out of there. And if that's, and if that's the case, <laughs> more power to them. <laughs> right. They decide to choose, uh, if, they, if they choose to use the time in a different way, then absolutely. Um, you know, I think it's the creating a dichotomy between practice and life is... Um, is an illusion. Uh-huh. Uh, and, you know, we're not practicing for something else. We're not practicing for the performance. You know, we're living our lives as we're living them. And, you know, in Zen very much when we say that we're practicing, practicing them, I really see practice as, you know, doing something that you normally do all the time and mostly mindlessly, doing it with attention, with deliberateness, with awareness. Um, to me, that's what it means to practice it, that you enter into a moment deliberately. You choose to be present to it, whether you're washing dishes or sitting in front of the computer or going for a run or sitting down on your cushion. Because you can absolutely space out on your cushion. I mean, I've done it. I've used... <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what you're talking about. Right. <laughs> All of us at some point have used probably many points have used practice as yet another buffer from life, yeah. from ourselves. And I most certainly have done that. And is part of what I, you could say, is uh, I'm, I'm very much interested in shifting, you know, to, to, to enter into each moment, you know, of, of my life. Um, as my first teacher, Daito Roshi, used to say, as if it's the first moment and the last moment of my life. And it sounds very dramatic when you say that. And it's not like you're really thinking about it and then doing it that way. Not really. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, an attitude of mind. It's a, 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 it's a, it's a shift, I think. And, and it really means a willingness to be there for all of your life. Right? So... You know, when I was trying to explain to my father why in the world I was in a Zen monastery many years ago, I said to him, you know, I don't want to miss a tenth of my life, a quarter of my life, half my life. I want to be there for all of it. Right? That's not Buddhist. You know, that is just uh, <laughs> an attitude of mind, if you will. And Buddhism gives us the tools to to do that. So... Um, so I always, I'm a great uh, believer and proponent of um, uh, liturgy as a means to uh, help yourself make something more deliberate. I mean, I remember experiencing the opposite many years ago when I was at the monastery and I was working two very demanding jobs and I was very filled with them and with the stress of them. Most of the time I didn't feel like I knew what I was doing and it was very challenging. And we, uh, in the fall and spring, we do a, a, an afternoon sit at five o'clock. So right after, at the end of the workday. And I would often spend that entire period working in my head mm-hmm. until one day I decided that I had had enough of that, you know, that I really wanted that time for Zazen. And so I began doing a very short, very simple service at my office um, or I just offer incense and I had, you know, a, an intent, intention, if you will, that I, that I brought up in my mind. So it was, it was like two minutes. It was very, very short. 
but that helped me to empty myself out of the work that I had just been doing for the last few hours and make the transition more deliberately into zazen. And that simple shift made a huge difference. And so I use liturgy in in every possible way, whether it's formal liturgy, which I continue to do, or um, shorter informal versions like this that just help me to transition, especially. Because a lot of our distraction happens in, in transitions, you know, moments when you're you know, brushing your teeth or you're walking from here to there or you're getting ready for the next Zoom call, you know, whatever it is. So something very simple can just bring you back. Yeah, I believe in liturgy deeply. It's such a, a great way almost to provide um, boundaries on the life that mm -hmm. that ultimately gave us more freedom. Exactly. But, yeah. Isn't that ironic? Yeah. But it's, it's so true that um, when we create this a little bit of a the word that's coming is barrier and it's not barrier but it's a threshold actually is what it feels like right which i in fact speak about you know in that in, in my that that piece i did on sacred space you know that that you stand at a threshold of what we normally consider the ordinary and the sacred and that's one way that we know okay this is sacred so in one sense i'm saying okay why don't you create these thresholds everywhere which is another way of saying there really are no thresholds. But because we forget, it's helpful to remind yourself what I am about to do matters. So I want to be there for it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sit, Breathe, Bow. I hope you found the conversation with Vanessa Suisei Goddard encouraging and helpful for your practice. You can find out more by visiting her website, Vanessa we say goddard.org that's z-u-i-s-e-i -E and i'll include links to both her website and her book still running the art of meditation in motion in the show notes a special thanks to our sponsor the quantum online sangha listeners of sit breathe bow are invited to try a free month of training with the online sangha to access your free month simply visit quantumzenonline.org and click on the free trial membership button on the homepage. And please consider subscribing and leaving a review of this podcast. It helps introduce us to new listeners. I'm your host, Ian Whitemar, and I hope you'll join me again next week. Mm -hmm.